In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Traditionally, there are two ways of describing the relationship with God, the creator, redeemer, and sustainer of life, the relationship, <coughs> excuse me, that God, the creator, redeemer, and sustainer of life has with his creation. One is transcendence, in which God seems to stand very much outside of things, up in the heavens, in power and majesty, present in his absence, if you like. The other is imminence, in which God is to be found in the midst of things, animating the humblest and most insignificant aspects of everyday life. The task of the follower of Christ is to seek to integrate God's imminence and his transcendence as much as that is possible. As you know, I like mountains. Why? Because mountains almost uniquely can draw those two dimensions of our experience of God together in creation. Mountains, especially rugged and geologically youthful mountains, 60 million years old or so like we have in the West, reach up to the heavens at times are actually engulfed in the heavens, in the clouds. Yet they are approachable. We can climb them, even walk up them on foot there to enjoy the view from the summit on a clear day. They are part of the joy that God's world gives us. Now, there are no mountaintop experiences in today's texts. Jesus is taking his leave of the mountaintop, descending, taking his disciples rather unwillingly with him to the foot of the cross, pushing their faith beyond its limits. Now, if there is joy in going to the cross, and there is for Jesus, and there is for all of us, it is not apparent to his followers. It will be. They must learn, as all followers of Christ must discover again and again, that the point of the cross is not just descending into death's dark valley, And staying there, the point of the cross is death and resurrection, ascending once again to the mountaintop, glorious in the rose and gold of dawn's first light. That light, that hope, that joy deferred but guaranteed is promised by the terms of the covenant covenant God makes with his chosen people, the unbroken and unbreakable contract that assures God's chosen children that life will follow death every time. Every time. Every time in this life we face death and lose, in all the ways that we can face death and lose, life will have the last word. That is God's word to us. How do we receive this blessing? The wonderful words from Romans 4 present the gospel in a nutshell. It will be counted to us, reckoned, It's an economic term to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, delivered up to the cross and to death for our trespasses, our sins, and raised for our justification. Now, how did we get to receive this blessing? Through Jesus, yes, but it starts before Jesus. It starts with Abraham. Abram, when we find him in our story, hearing God promise him again, and this is a restatement of something that began in Genesis 11, that because of his faithfulness, because of the trust of this one old man and his not quite so young wife, Sarah, Sarai for now, 
God will be able to propagate a nation that, as countless in number as the stars in the sky, will be a blessing to the whole world, and that will help the whole world truly live out God's dream for it. And what is God's dream for his world, for his creation? That the world be restored to its former glory, freed of sin and sickness and death, yes. But put that in terms of God's imminence, if you please. In the words of the 17th century Anglican divine Thomas Traherne, and I quote, Whatever else we do, it is only in order that we may live conveniently and to enjoy the world and God within it. That's imminence which is the sovereign employment, including and crowning all celestial life, that's transcendence of a glorious creature, without which all other estates are servile and impertinent, end quote. In other words, whatever God has in store for us in the hereafter, eternal life, or the life of the ion, the age to come, as it is better stated, God has in mind that now, right now, as we will in that age, we should enjoy the life of that age, period. We should enjoy life. We should enjoy life. You heard it here and in Lent. <laughs> we should enjoy life. In God's presence, we should glorify him and enjoy him, sounds like the Westminster Catechism, and delight in the life that we are living Coram Deo, in God's presence. Because if we are truly delight in ourselves, in one another and all of creation, and we are hardwired to do just that, then we need God present and accounted for to do so. And if we are to enjoy the presence of the God of the mountaintops, remote and majestic, the holy God down here in the valleys, then we need to be accounted righteous before him. We need his righteousness to be imputed, accounted to us. A giant deposit to be made in our account, if you like, without anything of our doing behind it. We need not just to be accountable for holiness and righteousness of our own in our dealings with one another, for we will soon find that if we set ourselves to the task of enjoying only our own life, living only for our own happiness, we shall sooner rather than later be seeing the implications for other people of what we thought were simply our lifestyle choices that affected only us. And these are not positive implications. And we shall see sooner rather than later that we cannot be happy. We cannot enjoy life without other people. That we cannot be happy, we cannot enjoy life without the other people in our lives being happy too. We shall see not just that they will not just be happy when we are, those people in our lives. We sometimes think that if we're happy, everybody's happy. But they have a happiness of their own to pursue. And all this has gone unnoticed by us. And sometimes when the light does go on and we realize not just how much their happiness was in our power to secure, but that their happiness is just as important in its own right as ours is to us. That the happiness of others matters just as much of our own, maybe more so, but let's go one step at a time. When that revelation comes, it is often too late 
for us to do the work we should have done when we have the opportunity for them and for us. And we are alone once again in our unhappiness. And there is no joy anymore in everyday life. And God is very much caught up up there in his own majesty. Now, it's good to enshrine the pursuit of happiness in some constitution or others, but all the liberty in the world and as much life as this world gives will not guarantee that we get what we are pursuing, trying to get hold of, trying to grasp. What is Avram, Abraham waiting to tell us about this with all his talk of seed and land and stars and mountains? Well, we start by going back to a mountain. No, a particular place, an ancient place in my life where 11 mountaintops encircle a sea of ice and snow. This mountain is not just in my life, it's a real mountaintop. It's a place where my family would regularly go when I was a child, high in the Rockies. The Columbia ice fields are one of those rare places where heaven and earth are brought very close. You pull off to the side of the road, a mountain highway at about a mile elevation, and you are literally at the foot of this glacier, which covers about 125 square miles. It's a big glacier. The mountains around it tower another mile higher. And in places, that glacier is a thousand feet thick. The snow dropping at 20 feet a year over 10,000 years or more has built up this mass of ice. To explore this glacier, you get into these little paramilitary vehicles with skis at the front and tracks like on a tank at the back, which crawl up and down the vast whiteness like black beetles. It is a pure, pristine place. Nothing lives above the tree line, and the glacier has scoured the land, spewing out mud and clay and rock as it makes its way back and forth. The part I remember most of this, the toe of the glacier, the terminus, where you make the transition on foot, you walk out of the car, you crunch across the moraine, you step up on the glacier, then you get in one of these vehicles. You make this step onto this ledge, but there underfoot, and don't step here, your guide will say, is this little rivulet, this babbling brook, but that would magnify it, this trickling stream of cold, clear water gurgling over the gravel on its way down grade. This water is thousands of years old, having been locked up in the ice and now set free by the light of the sun. Watch it. That's the Athabasca River, said our guide with a twinkle in his eye. The Athabasca, which flows 700 miles to Lake Athabasca, from there it becomes the Slave River flows another 300 miles into Great Slave Lake, and from there it flows another 1,000 miles into the Arctic Ocean. At its peak, that river is discharging 100,000 cubic feet of water per second, that little stream. Way over on the other side of that glacier, the Columbia River starts its journey to the Pacific in just the same way as a tiny, insignificant trickle from this great block of ice. Other little streams will feed Hudson's Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. We're on the Continental Divide, in other words, a watershed in which three great drainage basins feed 
three great oceans. Now you see why that image comes to my mind when I'm reading Genesis 17 and previous right away, don't you? Well, I think in analogies. Let me, let me exegete my analogy a little bit. From his loins and from Sarah's womb will come this great nation, gathering tributaries and the tribute of kings and nations. A people for God started with supernatural assistance. Abraham is as good, as dead, as ancient as days, as that great rolling river. Sarah's womb is as sterile as some terminal romaine. Romaine, romaine, sorry, moraine. Romaine wouldn't be so bad. Moraine, all (laughs) rock, basically, ground to different consistencies. Yet God invests the future of his world, the world he loves, in these two rather unpromising seniors. And they are no saints. As you know, I shake my head at what Paul said in the reading. Avram, he has been waiting for a dozen years, after all, for any sign of this promise's fulfillment. Avram starts to hurry the process along with Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. But that child, Ishmael, brought into the world by purely natural means, by hook and by crook, will not bear the blessing to humanity. Think of one of those entire drainage areas now cut off. Only Isaac and then Jacob and his 12 sons will provide the society that will inherit the land of promise. Only this one stream and its watershed, its drainage area, is going to carry the blessing that far downstream to the land of promise. If we sometimes view the kingdom As the top of a tall mountain, with all paths climbing upward to God, that makes me very nervous. I say, well, they all climb upward to Jesus, and what Jesus does to them is his business. But the whole image is rather flawed. Once again, it puts all the effort on our climbing mountains. Whenever you read about climbing mountains, you're in theologically very difficult territory. Here, I think, we're presented with another image which may be of some use, the Great Divide. The rivers running down away from each other, diverging, never to meet. Only one will arrive at its destination, even though all came from the same source. So we are predestined to some cosmic drainage area or another. Well, it's an image that I find interesting. I don't know how the predestination works, and we're not told about that. I do know this. Our lives flow into that great river of life by choice. God's choice, and no less our choice, in some way that I cannot comprehend. That choice is made not by nations, not by families. It is made one person at a time, by faith. It is the same choice Abram made. It gives us a new family, a new identity, a new name. For Abram, exalted father of distinguished lineage and high birth, now becomes Abraham, Abraham, father of a multitude. Noble ancestry doesn't count anymore. It's given up. The past is gone. But the promise has now been given. Likewise with Sarai, Sarah, one looks no longer back to Abraham's DNA, his noble descent, One looks ahead to the noble descendants who will come from his stepping out in faith. 
Abraham is not being rewarded for his ancestry, his natural genetic heritage. He is being rewarded for his faith, and that was given to him as a gift. And again and again, that faith is tested and proven only when Abraham shows himself ready to give up everything that is rightfully his and go on empty-handed, trusting only in the Lord. Whenever Abraham types to take things into his own hands and hold on to what he thinks is rightfully his by any principles of justice, God steps back. When Abraham surrenders and gives it back and says, you know God steps in. We look only to Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac, to see that this principle is made absolutely clear. The pattern is always, and here is where the cross comes in. If you want something more, you must be ready to give up whatever you already have. God has no use for our tendency to grab and grasp and hold on to even noble things, even especially the things that God has given us. You let it go back into his hands and surrender. Then, only then, might he give it back and then some with interest. And he will. But you have to trust to pull up the stakes like Avram, pack up, move on, leave everything behind, all the property and the land that was given to you, take the clothes on your back and your family, and go. Again and again, this is the biblical pattern. You want to be happy then, and let's close it up, and enjoy life. The last thing you do is pursue happiness. What a truly mischievous phrase that is, the pursuit of happiness, and what mischief it has caused. The last thing is you do, if you want to be happy, is pursue happiness, especially your own happiness. You may pursue the happiness of others. That is something very different. And it sounds noble, this pursuit of the happiness of others, lofty, too abstract, cold and remote like some glacial peak, maybe. But try it. Put it to the test. If we sought each other's happiness more often, a little more often, we might find it and our own. We're going to have a chance to look at a real-life case involving our church family, which our diocese has essentially surrendered and said there's nothing more we can do in the face of an attempt to grab what is theirs. We have an opportunity, unbidden, and we're at no risk in this, in our little church, to come to their help, to look out for their happiness, precisely their way or they have basically turned it back to God. You'll hear a little bit more about this later in the service. I think the ball has been passed to us to really go, in a sense, where there seems to be no hope whatsoever, like Abram, and carry God's providence with us. More on that. But this is all given in the life of Jesus, Our Lord Jesus gave up his crown for a crown of thorns. Why? For us. So that he could gather us on some celestial peak above the tree line 
leave us there, his frozen chosen? No. So that we might learn from him, through him, how to enjoy life. How to live our lives joyfully, surrounded by the happiness of others for which we have labored. It's very simple, very down to earth. And that is where you'll find him, too, this Jesus, down on earth. Amen.